0: When it comes to investing, retirement, taxes, healthcare, and estate planning, the decisions you make today can greatly affect the quality of life for you and your loved ones tomorrow. What you need is straight and unbiased information on the most important issues you'll face when planning for your retirement and financial future. Good news. You found Premier Retirement Radio with Jeff Fogan. Jeff is the founder of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management, and he's been guiding people financially and into retirement for 30 years. So get ready for an hour of the most comprehensive financial information on the radio. Premier Retirement with Jeff Vogan. And now here's Jeff Vogan and Jeff Shea.
1: Thank you so much. Welcome to Premier Retirement with Jeff Vogan, the radio show that gives you the straight talk and honest answers you need to help you reach your wealth management and retirement goals through smart investing and careful planning. I'm Jeff Shade, and I'm just here to ask the questions. But of course, the other Jeff in this show has the solid advice for you. That would be Jeff Vogan, founder and president of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management. Jeff, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, how are you doing? I am doing great, thank you. Fall is upon us, of course, as we've talked about here. You couldn't tell it too much by the temperatures here in Tucson, but the temperature is dropping a little bit. We don't necessarily have frost on the pumpkin. I remember when I was a kid, I mean, we would go out for Halloween trick-or-treat. We'd dress up as things like, well, Richard Nixon and Jimmy Carter <laughs> would be dating us. But these days, I wonder if the kids put on like a Biden mask or a Trump mask and maybe Biden and Trump fight on the front lawn or maybe even a Jerome Powell mask. Oh, boy. What do you think? Jerome Powell comes to your door, you answer it, and he says, uh, if you don't give me a treat, I'll raise your interest rates.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think uh, I think we leave politics out of our holidays <laughs> we, and just we, go we and enjoy really it. Should. We, we really I'd should. Rather, yeah, let's just have a... Uh you know, just uh, aliens and cowboys and Indians, you know, yeah, Why don't you we just stay with the old standard and not get political. With exactly. It
1: all again? Ghosts and goblins and that sort of thing. But nevertheless, Halloween is a fun time. They paint it to be a scary time, but it is a fun time for everybody. And it's a fun time for the adults to take little kids around. They bring their pets, too. And sometimes I'll see, you know, a dog dressed up like a cat. But nevertheless, Halloween's going to be here before you know it. Then it's going to be Thanksgiving, Christmas and then 2024. And then the fun begins all over again before you blink twice. As I said, it will be a new year. So let's talk about what's going on here in the fourth quarter here of 2023 at this point. I understand that there are going to be some increases to some costs that retirees are going to be paying this year. And also we've gotten the information about Social Security. But let's start with what I understand is the Medicare Part B premium is going to be going up in 2024. Can you elaborate on that? Well,
2: yeah, Medicare Part B is always the part that, you know, a retiree has to pay for. You know, the Part A is usually if you have enough quarters, the Part A is paid for covered by your uh, basically the you know, Medicare taxes that you paid your whole life working. And a lot of subsidies go there too. But it used to be that it was, uh, I think it was 178 a couple of years ago. Then it went down to in the 160s last year. Now it's 174.70 is the number that they're planning on for 2024. So it's still pretty much in line with what it's been the last few years. Not much increase there, which is nice given the fact that there's uh, inflation happening on everything else. You know, this inflation bump wasn't really a huge bump. I mean, I guess it was $9.80, which is, you know, a little bit more in line with inflation from a year ago. But if you think about what it was two years ago, it was uh, higher. So, you know, kind of keeping that in check. It's uh, honestly, Medicare is really good insurance for what you pay for it. Although you paid a lot more for it while you were working, your employer paid for it. We're all paying a lot of money for Medicare and the more you make, the more you pay. So whether you get your money's worth is kind of depends on you and your situation, but it is good insurance. And you know, at your age, you can't go to a private market and buy better insurance for less money. So... You know, count that a blessing. Now, the thing that's most, uh, I guess, important, especially when we consider income planning, tax planning and other things and what you're gonna live on during retirement is, you know, that number goes up as your income goes up, as your taxable income goes up. So we have right. to make sure that uh, you don't, you know, kick the tax can down the road. All of a sudden, you know, five years down the road, you have really high taxable income because you get into those RMD years and all of a sudden now your is doubled for the next 25 or 30 years. So, you know, knowing what the part B is, is one thing, but also knowing the levels that that it increases and at what income you can live on or pay tax on. You can live on, I mean, we have plans that where somebody might live on 200,000, but they still you know, stay below the threshold of where Medicare would uh, jump up. So again, that's one thing to keep in in, uh, consideration, probably more than what you pay on a monthly basis because yeah, it's still pretty much just that 200-ish or 150 to $200 that goes out every month to make sure that your doctor's uh, bills are covered and so forth. And then of course, if you wanna get out of that, you buy a supplement or you can always go on Advantage. I'm not a fan of Advantage, you probably heard me say that, but uh, you can also buy a supplement that would cover all your deductibles and that would be, you know, probably something that costs a little bit less than the Part B amount, but it would still be an out-of-pocket cost. But even still, you know, if you're out $300 a month for insurance in, as a retiree when your health is probably the most sketchy as it's going to be throughout your life, I and mean, that's when all these things start coming, you know, compounding and coming to plague us in our later years typically you know, the knee replacements, the arthritis, the just the stuff that happens when you're old. I hate to say it, I'm feeling old myself. but uh,
1: you, know, <laughs> me you too. know, And I'm noticing some of
2: these things creeping in <laughs> on me. It's like, man, you know, things just aren't quite like they were when I was 20 or 30 or even 40. Right. But, you know, as we get older and we think, you know, right now I'm working and, you know, my insurance just for me and my wife would be over 2000 a month. Uh, yeah. Just yeah. because it's means tested. I mean, and that's with a $12,000 deductible. Are you kidding me? Yeah, that's The crazy. deductibles are way lower on Medicare. So, I mean, if you ever complain crazy, about these yeah. costs for Medicare you're getting some great insurance returns on your money now of course there are some restrictions and hoops you have to jump through if you want to not have a supplement you might have to go to the doctors that take Medicare assignment and so forth but most do I mean that's a big part of their you know annual and monthly budget so that pays their bills. Medicare pays their bills. So most doctors do take Medicare assignment. And if you want to go to your own doctor and, you know, have all the flexibility that you wanted, that you had before when you paid big premiums and were working with insurance, then you can buy a supplement and those costs
1: are generally covered. Jeff, you talked about the Part B deductible. It is uh, going to be rising to $240 in 2024 from $226 this past year. And what I mean by that is 2023, that's a lot better than the $12,000 deductible that you have. You also talked about Part B beneficiaries with annual individual incomes greater than $103,000 are going to be paying more than the standard premium. For example, someone filing an individual tax return whose income is between $103,000 and $129,000 will pay two forty, four sixty dollars a month for Part B instead of the standard $174.70. So certainly we have to consider those when income planning. But like you said, when you look at what you get versus what you pay, you're really getting a lot for that. So that's what we're gonna be paying more for in 2024. Let's talk about the Social Security Administration. They have released their COLA increases, cost of living adjustment increases. Can you tell us more about that?
2: Yeah, it's going up at a 3.2% clip. It uh, went up more than that the last couple of years. I mean, it's it's nice that some of our income gets an increase. However, you know, if workers are not making at least that much more, then the trust fund gets a little bit tapped. You know, we got to worry about, you know, what the longevity of that trust fund is. It looks like it's going to run dry. In about 2033, where the workers that are uh, expected to pay in between employers and workers right now would only pay in about 75% of what's required after 2033. So some of those cost of living adjustments are great for the people receiving them. Not so great if you look in the future and how it taxes out the longevity and the stability of the uh, trust fund itself. However, you know what are you going to do? These people are on fixed incomes. Inflation is real. Food and gas really does cost more for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, although there's certain things like uh, you know maybe housing isn't a big deal because you've got your house paid off. Maybe you're not buying cars all the time because you you're not commuting to work every day and you don't put that much mileage on a car. So I mean there are some things that do go down in retirement. And that's why you can generally live on a lot less than you did when you were working or depending on your income it could be the same, could be a lot less, could be a little more. So Keeping all these things in mind is important because it is really what we need to do to, you know, tweak our plans every year when these uh, numbers come in. You know, we have to make sure that we have the cash flow to cover that. And if we're going to get an increase of cash flow of three and a half percent and you're getting 2000 a month, let's just say uh, around 3000 a month, then you're going to get an extra $100 a month uh, in income. Well, that's nice. That buys a little bit extra bread and gas. If you look at that on an annual basis, that's 1200 bucks. I mean, that's not a, ba- not a bad increase. You know, a lot of people don't have any increases on their pensions. Most people don't, actually. Right. Some military and others do. Government pensions typically uh, would, but uh, most private pensions don't. And you've got to make up the difference either on just the Social Security roll-up, if you have Social Security, depending on if your pension actually offsets Social Security or not. But it's nice to have some sort of an inflation protection and take advantage of that. One thing I we didn't mention in the Medicare, you, you mentioned the Part B deductible, but there's also a Part A deductible that right. uh, depending on if you, uh, I mean, that's a deductible everybody pays in addition to what I mentioned, the Part A premium is actually out of pocket for those that don't actually uh, pay in enough uh, contributions to the, the Medicare. But that deductible goes up to uh, $1,632 per stay. I remember not too long ago it was only $1,000, and it was right. like, oh, that's not a big deal. But you know, even $1,632—that's a yearly amount, just right. like the amount for uh, Medicare Part B, that $240 instead of $226. So the $240, that's annual. So that's only 20 bucks a month uh, if you look at it on a monthly out-of-pocket cost. But again, if you want to buy a supplement and pay, you know, 100, 150 dollars a month, you can get all those deductibles paid, and you can choose your own doctor and get any overcharges or excess charges taken care of, where you don't have to deal with inside a network or maybe go to a doctor that's really too busy to see you because every Medicare patient goes there, and you know, they don't have those that don't have supplements or those that are on Advantage have to go to their network. And uh, you might find uh, better services outside of that Medicare uh, only program by uh, having a supplement and buying a little bit of flexibility with that. And again, you know, even that is, I think it's just cheap insurance. I'm 60 now, so I'm thinking, gee, only five more years I get to have that insurance. My gosh, yeah. my premiums go way down. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to, boy, I can have all kinds of things and tests and things that I'm not really sure I want to pay for yeah. right now that, you know, may or may not be a big deal. I mean, obviously I take care of anything that, you know, I have a symptom for that I know needs fixing. But, you know, when you have Medicare, anytime you sneeze, wrong, you, you can go in. So yeah. you know, it's not like you have to pick and choose because you have a big deductible. So yeah, I, I just hate people that complain yeah. about Medicare. Oh, yeah. it costs me so much. Like, are you
1: kidding me? Right. Oh, man. Well, <laughs> go back to paying your own big insurance. Once you get to be Medicare age, and you get that insurance. I mean, your life is going to be a lot easier as far as health insurance goes. And yeah, I've been in your same boat exactly too, paying those high monthly premiums for my wife and myself. But really, when you look at what you're paying versus what you're getting, this is a great, great deal. And, you know, you talked about people complaining about things those people complaining about 3.2% for the COLA increase. Last year, it was 8.7% total. For two years, it's 11.9%. Let's call it 12%, a 12% raise in two years and 24 months. In today's society, in today's economy, am I wrong, Jeff, but would it be unusual for somebody to get a 12% raise in their pay considering the economic situations over the course of two years? I don't know that that's realistic unless you change jobs or get a promotion. I think with that,
2: certainly there is. But I mean, keeping the same job, doing the same thing. I haven't heard of people getting 12% raises in the last few years. I mean, maybe three to five, two to three. Most companies, I'm talking to people that aren't giving raises anymore just because, you know, earnings are down. uh, The economy is a little sluggish uh, because the companies have to pay more for all their supplies and parts because of inflation. They really don't have as much profits. And we're coming into earnings season right now, just uh, this month, where we're going to hear, you know, how the third quarter went and how the companies, again, are continuing Continuing to make less money over uh, you know, quarter after quarter, year after year, the earnings are down. Even though some earnings reports are coming in as if they're higher than expected, they're still lower than last year. And so, yeah, there's really not a lot of even these AI companies that are getting all the hype that whose stock prices are going up for no real fundamental reason other than the future possibilities of you know making revenues. There's really not a lot of earnings growth or even revenue growth that's driving the markets. So we've got Apple, you know, that's uh, you know on its third quarter of you know not growing like they used to. I mean, their earnings and uh, revenues are decreasing. They're having a hard time with the uh, the iPhone 15. You know, a lot of really good companies that are struggling, you know, makes your head scratch a little bit. It doesn't really. I mean, if, if, if you hear the reports that there is no recession and we're not going to have anything and this market cycle isn't going to complete, which by the way, cycles always complete. The cycles just sometimes, you know, have a different look to them. But, you know, we're in a corrective cycle. The corrective cycle does end up completing. It may complete this quarter, maybe the next year. I don't know when. There are certain trends that we have to respect, you know, in the market. It's not really a safe place to play because of all the different things that are adding up. We've got the reduction in earnings with uh, corporate America, big companies, blue chip companies. The only thing driving it, like I said, is hype uh, right now for AI, but it's not real fundamental earnings. Uh, The price that we're paying for a stock is higher than it's like ever been, if you consider it compared to earnings. You know, the average dividend of a stock is far less than the fixed rate of interest on a short term bond or even a long term bond. You know, when that happens, there's always a big correction. The last two times it happens, the corrections were 50%. So there's a lot of things feeding into the fact that the economy is really not set on really strong footings. We've got the economic indicator index that I talked about a few weeks ago that has been going down 16, now 17 months in a row. Got the uh, worst housing market we had in decades as far as the sales go. There's a lot of things that are weighing on the economy, and yeah, it's hard for companies to pay their uh, employees more and give them raises and do all the things that it takes to really keep up with inflation. And that's why all these things coming together are what's going to cause probably this recession. Or it's more than a catalyst; these are all catalysts to what will end up being a recession. And probably the biggest one is the M2 money supply, where there's just not a lot of excess savings laying around to go into the market and prop it up anymore. So, you know, we're probably going to see some sort of a correction. You know, companies are kind of digging in and trying to create a good footing. So, you know, they're not giving raises so people that are working aren't getting the increases people that are retired are i don't know that that's you know necessarily fair or unfair the thing is is you know i think everybody has to tighten the belt a little bit and just know that things like food and gas which have increased more than the what the overall inflation rate has increased are the big expenses that everybody has to deal with and is kind of hurting the economy and hurting us going forward. So we'll see how it all shakes out. You know, a retirement is 20 or 30 years. We're looking at just a retirement. You know, our financial life is decades, 60, 70, 80 years, depending on when we start working and how long we live. There's going to be corrections. I mean, some people say I'm a doom and gloomer. Say, no, this stuff happens. It happens on a cycle. It's going to happen. It's going to happen three or four more times, probably in your lifetime if you have already been retired. Just expect it. The fact is, it's how you deal with it that matters, not whether or not you you're right or wrong about it, or if you're a pessimist because you don't believe the market's going to go up. I do believe the market's going to go up. Overall, it always goes up. I just don't think that there's a lot of support, a really strong foundation for causing that effect, at least for the next few quarters, and there's a lot more pressure downward. So we have to be careful. We also have to look at the writing on the wall. And back to your original question, I know I go full circle sometimes on these things and get a little bit deviated, but it's the ADHD catching. And when I have so many ideas I want to talk about, <laughs> yeah. given you know what you started talking about, and that's right. back to you know the inflation, or are we really keeping up with inflation? Consumers aren't unfortunately in the biggest sector of the market, even though retirees are a huge sector and, and social security income is a majority of the people, it's their biggest source of income in retirement. The fact is the people that are earning, you know, 50, 60, 70, 100, several hundred thousand dollars a year and not getting those pay increases are having to make big adjustments. You look at the overall money supply, you know, I, I don't know that, you know, those raises are are gonna keep up with the actual inflation unless we get it back in, in check back to that two percent level. And that's not gonna be something that just happens overnight. That's something that the Fed's working on really hard to do. I think they got started late, and I think that's what's causing some of the problems. But it's just a matter of time. We're going to work it out. We always do. America's a great country. We always work it out. But let's not be stupid in the meantime while it's working itself out and take too many risks and do things that are um, irrational. Let's just you know look at the situation and plan accordingly.
1: Jeff, I want to reiterate something that you said, which may have gone unnoticed by a lot of people, but you said it's not what happens, but it's how you deal with it. And if people want a plan on how to deal with things, certainly I want them to call you there at Premier Retirement. The number is 520-780-9059 to request your no cost, no obligation Premier Retirement Roadmap. Again, that number, 520-780-9059. It'll be just a casual conversation between you and Jeff to take a look at what you have and see if it can be made better. Again, no cost, no obligation whatsoever. For the phone call, you can do it in person. You can also have a Zoom meeting, however you want to do it. Call 520-780-9059 to talk with Jeff. You can also request your Premier Retirement Roadmap online at primret.com, P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. And remember, it's open enrollment period for those people who are interested in Medicare Advantage plans. That goes until December the 7th. And, of course, Jordan at the firm here does take a look at those things. Jeff, every week we talk about a case of the week. This week is no different. Uh, What was your case of the week about Jeff? And uh, let's talk a little bit about how that applies to people who might be listening to us and the solution that you came up with.
2: Well, you know, this is something that is kind of a recurring trend or kind of a recurring theme of how we do income plans. And, you know, you can go on uh, online at uh, companies like Fidelity, Vanguard, any of those retirement planning companies that do a lot of mutual funds and things. They call themselves retirement planning companies. And yeah, I guess they are if you plan according to the stock market risk, volatility and all those things. This guy has a little over a million dollars. He's uh, this couple. They're uh, he's getting ready to retire in a couple of years, and been with his broker for over 20. They've become very good friends. But they only offer securities. They only offer stocks and bonds. Now, if you look at long-term history, stocks average around 10, and bonds average around four to six. Which you know we're kind of back in that range again now. The interesting thing is, is there came a rule in the 90s when these averages still were intact that was called the four percent rule. The 4% rule, because it has to deal with volatility of the market, says you can't take more than 4% of your gross revenue. So let's just round it down to a million dollars. Yeah, a little over that, but let's say around a million dollars. That means your income should be around $40,000 a year. Well, okay, $40,000 a year is all you can use. But if the stock market makes 10 and the bond market averages six, why is it you can only take four and there's a chance you'll run out of money? Well, it's because there's volatility. There's going to be a few periods and, you know, in a, a lifetime of retirement, which is probably three decades, maybe four, depending on how long you live. There's going to be probably a nice big fat correction per decade. In fact, in the 2000 to 2010, we had two big ones of 50%. We haven't had that again since then, but we've had a few 20s. We had a 25 and 18. We had a harsh one with COVID. We had uh, last year was 20 to 30% down for most people in 2022. So we've had some minor corrections, nothing really big, but those that happen every so often, while you're taking money out, if you're taking 4% out and the market's only worth half, you're effectively taking 8% out. So you're actually drawing down money that's not going to be growing again. So with these plans, this guy did a, his own spreadsheet. This guy's a, a guru with spreadsheets. And so he put his plan together and he actually sent me a PowerPoint. And he says, you know, I, I did some analytics. He says, you know, if I deal with their plan with the same amount of money because I have to be really conservative, he says, your income plan shows me living on more than $60,000 per year more than their plan. He says, but here's the fallacy of your plan. I said, fine, tell me what it is. He goes, when I'm 95, their plan shows that I'm living on 60000 more than yours. And we have about the same amount of money in the end. Now, we use a lot of principal protected. Okay, so let me back. I'll come full circle and explain what I mean by that. But, you know, we use very low interest. We You know, on our principal protected accounts, if they have a back-tested track record of eight or nine, we'll use five or six on our, our assumption pages. So we always undercut. On our LERPs, we go, you know, half to, you know, maybe 1% lower than actual rates of return. And, Based it on you know history returns, we actually project low. So you know we're being pretty conservative. But here's the thing, you know, with tax savings is is part of that sixty thousand was just tax savings because we're maneuvering money around. But don't you want to do more things in the go go years? And he says, well, the, you know another big reason he says, what about inflation? Things are going to be costing at least double when we're in our nineties than they do now. I said, yeah, but you're gonna be traveling now. You've still got a mortgage now. You've got a car payment now. You like to buy new cars. You like to go have fun. you know, in your 60s now. By the time you're in your 70s or 80s, you're gonna slow down. I said, are you really gonna be, when you're sitting in that assisted living facility, are you really gonna care that you have twice the money and twice the tax bill, twice the RMDs that need to come out of your IRA because you're sitting there doing nothing and you have all this extra money that you can live on that you don't spend anyway? He goes, Well, that's exactly the assumption that I end up coming if when I saw this, he says, Yeah, my wife and I and so I thought I might have to kind of talk him down, and say, Yeah, well, you could start out with less, but yeah, you know, inflation's gonna wipe you out in the end. It it really doesn't. And I've seen this in real time over the last thirty five years. The people, let's say they had you know, half a million to a million dollars. I, I had a client over 30 years ago at 600,000 when she retired and she started spending money. And it, within about eight or 10 years, this is one of my very first comprehensive clients when I finally went out on my own and she trusted me with all of her assets. So we diversified and did all kinds of things. Well, she was down to like 480. And I thought, you know, you're spending this down. And, you know, if you start compounding the spends as you get older, you might run out of money. And I was getting a little bit nervous. And I, you know, had that conversation that, you know, she might want to be a little bit more conservative. She says, well, no, she says, I'm just going to slow down. She says, you you know, I've been going out and seeing my kids in Colorado and in Louisiana, like, you know, three times a year. He says, I'm I'm going once. He says, I don't think I'm gonna buy the new car this year. She says, I think I'll be okay. And you know, it's funny, she died a few years ago and she and I had her as a client for about thirty something years, about 32, 33 years. And her assets were back up above seven hundred thousand again. And she never really changed her lifestyle. She spent all the money she needed. She even spent a little bit of time that she paid out of pocket in a nursing home because she had a knee replacement and actually got infected and she ended up dying in the nursing home, unfortunately, in her late 80s. But she was um, a sweet lady. I got worried, but when I saw how it really plays out, and I've seen this over and over again since then, people spend more, they want to spend more generally right out of the gate. They don't want to be so frugal that they have to live like a pauper in their 60s and not travel and ride in the coach in the tight seats in the back of the plane when they could be riding first class and enjoying their trip or even in the front rows on the cross the pond when you go to Europe. And mm-hmm. I mean, you know, enjoy it. Enjoy the retirement. Be comfortable. If you've saved a lot, enjoy that money. There's going to come a time when it's hard to find a way to spend you know, more than you're making in the later years of life because you're not traveling. You're not buying new cars. You're not going to see the kids all the time. They're coming to see you now. The grandkids are coming to see you. The great grandkids are coming to see you. You just don't have that same ability to find ways to spend money unless you just move into a really expensive retirement community where they overcharge you and you spend way too much for food and all the fun that they provide. So, I mean, there are ways to blow through some money if you do that, but you know, if you have the kind of money, if you've uh, done well, and if these assumptions that I state on your income plan are lower than actual, then you'll probably still have enough money to spend more in your later years. I just wanna provide some sort of a, a guide that's predictable that looks a little bit more reasonable from the standpoint of when you really want to spend and use your money. Let's not buy into the, I guess, the the theory from the Wall Street firms that want to keep all your money under management longer and make fees over and over again by this narrative that somehow you're going to need twice or three times as much money in 30 years as you need now. The reality is, is I have not seen that play out. I have not seen that scenario where people 30 years from retirement or even 20 years from retirement, spend more than they did when they first retired. I haven't seen that even with factoring in inflation. I've been doing this 35 years, so I actually have seen it. I've been there right alongside these clients that have been here with me the whole time. So again, the plan of the week was somebody that came to their own conclusion by doing their own spreadsheet, that going along with the Wall Street plan and having to factor in volatility of their plan makes them live on less money for a longer period of time when they want to spend more than they would if they just managed taxes, protected principal, got assets that guaranteed or at least provided predictable or guaranteed lifetime income that you can count on. And it also puts you in a position where you can predetermine what your tax bracket's going to be before you go into this year, next year, or even five years from now. You know how much taxes you're going to end up paying because you don't have a lot out there as far as these surprise tax bills that come later depending on how your investments do that year. Again, you can structure things to where things are predictable. You can keep your taxes on your Medicare or your surcharge on Medicare in check. You can keep your taxes in check. You can keep more of your money because you send less to the IRS. That's uh, bottom
1: line. And you can spend more when you need it. Jeff, I'm going to bet that our listeners, based on your conversation about the case of the week, may have some questions for you. If you do need answers, and request your No Cost, No Obligation Premier Retirement Roadmap with Jeff. You can get it at No Cost, No Obligation by calling 520-780-9059. 520-780-9059. We do have some slots open right now, but they are filling fast. So if you're interested in talking with Jeff about your individual situation, again, make that appointment, 520-780-9059. It's just a casual conversation. You can do it in person, you can do it by phone, or you can do it by Zoom. Once again, no cost, no obligation for that. 520 780 or online at premret.com, P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com.
0: Want more talk about sustaining your wealth and thriving in a retirement that could last 30 plus years? Stay tuned for more Premier Retirement with Jeff Hogan after this can't start a trip you've never taken without a plan, and you can't start your retirement journey without a comprehensive plan to get there safely. To request your no-cost Premier Retirement Roadmap, call 580-780-9059 or request it online at premret.com. Now back to more Premier Retirement with Jeff Hogan and Jeff Shea.
1: Jeff, we have had some great conversations on the show today. And if our listeners have missed any part of the show, I want to remind them that we are a podcast. Simply go to wherever you get your podcast. Search for Premier Retirement with Jeff Ogan. You'll find this show and all of our past shows so you can stay on top of your wealth and your journey towards retirement. Once again, our number, if you've got questions or comments about the show, 520-780-9059. That's the same number that you can use to get in and get your Premier Retirement Roadmap at no cost and no obligation. And again, if you have questions because it's open enrollment period about the Medicare Advantage plans, Jordan handles that here at the firm. And again, the same number for Jeff and Jordan. It's 520-780-9059. This segment, Jeff, we always tackle listener questions. So we'll kick it off with Christine, who has an extensive question, and she's listening to us in Rita Ranch. Christine writes, I'm 74 and unmarried. I've accumulated about $1.8 million in assets, including stocks, bonds, mutual funds, a home, and cash. I do not trust many people due to unfortunate circumstances. For this reason, I'm suspicious of revocable living trusts, which are private, confidential, and with no oversight. My plan is to have a handwritten, notarized will bequeathing my personal property and the remainder of my estate to charitable organizations. Also in my will, I'm asking the courts to select an executor. In addition, I have named beneficiaries in all my bank accounts, retirement accounts, and am doing a transfer on death from my primary residence, so I have control of my main assets while I'm alive. If it's not too much trouble, could you please be so kind as to let me know what the implications or drawbacks are of taking this route?
2: Well, you know, I don't like the court process. I don't like probate. And you're basically saying, I want to go through probate. Probate takes years. And there's, I think, a reason for that. Uh, You know, lawyers, the legal profession still gets billed and they still bill hourly. Mm -hmm. And when you're dead, they can charge whatever fees they want to. And I'm I'm not trying to uh, say that all lawyers are uh, sleazy and self-centered, but there are enough of them that are. And when you can't do anything about it, you just never know what hands you're going to get put into. I mean, maybe the judge that assigns the executor to your state is a law firm that he's, you used to work for, or somehow somebody, maybe one of his golf buddies, and, you know, they're just kind of helping each other scratch each other's back, so to speak. Your assets will be diminished if you go through the court process. It's unfortunate you can't uh, trust somebody, uh, even a sibling or a niece, nephew, or somebody that could oversee that process through a trust. Now, by the way, you do not give up control while you're alive if you do a trust. A trust is you can be the grantor and the beneficiary and the trustee all at the same time you get the benefit. You get to call the shots. You can put things in and out of the trust. It doesn't cost you anything to do that. It's just a matter of, you know, going through a a couple of uh, changes on your accounts. You just let the accounts know that, you know, you're a trustee of your own trust. You can transfer them from yourself to the trust. There's no tax implications to that. If they're um, IRAs and things like that, you still own them. The trust becomes a beneficiary and then somebody can oversee that. Now, I would just, I mean, to be so out of the loop as to let the court who you cannot control, you have no idea who's gonna show up and be in charge of this probate process, assign somebody You know your, uh, control of all your assets just because they're supposed to go to a charity, shoot, if there's nobody knocking at their door, nobody coming into the will reading and the probate to try to hold the court accountable for how these assets are paid out, And if the charities don't know that their assets and they don't have representatives there, I just can't see somebody in the court finding ways to uh, dilly-dally and just bill hours upon hours upon hours while they try to figure out how the charities are going to get all this money and eventually it'll happen. But it'll be at a much less dollar amount than you start with, I guarantee it. That's what I've seen over and over again. Your assets, unless they're invested really well and the market's doing really well while they're spending your money, I, I just can't see there'll be more assets by the time you end up distributing those assets to the charities as they would otherwise. Now, there are, donor-advised funds where you can actually put a lot of this stuff in charity now. It's kind of like a separate trust, which is a charitable trust, where you can actually get the tax deductions on giving a lot of your stuff away while you live, moving money out of IRAs. You can put it in a donor-advised type fund. If you know you're not going to spend all $1.8 million, maybe half of it, you can get some nice tax breaks along the way if you use some charitable gifting before you wait till you die. Now, the good thing about waiting till you die to give charities charity's assets, if they're IRAs, is you do get out of the income tax on it because charities typically are 501c3s, meaning that they don't have to pay tax on their income. And of course, if you give IRA money directly to a charity, you get an offsetting tax deduction, which means the returns would not be diminished by all the taxes, the 30 or 40% taxes you might pay on the 1.8 million if those were all IRA assets. So there are a lot of situations that could be added to your plan. I don't necessarily think there's a fallacy to your plan other than the fact if you really want all your money to go to a charities, it's not going to do it this way. And if you're really worried about having control you have no control in the plan that you just set up. You have a lot more control with a trustee. And if you can somehow come up with one or two people that can look over each other's shoulder to make sure that your assets get sent to the charities and that they're able to be compensated one or 2% like a typical trust company would. By the way, I wouldn't use a trust company either. They say they're fiduciaries, but they often are self-centered. I hate to keep indicting all these companies that supposedly, you know, are built for the distribution and the estate plans and so forth. But I've I've seen it happen to where too often a trust company self-deals a little too much. And that's just a fact. And I'm being uh, totally honest here. I'm not trying to point fingers at any particular trust company or trustee. But you know, they get management fees, so they'll invest the money. They'll take a while to figure it out. So they get you know, the longer they keep the money under their control, the more fees they get. So I, I believe it's a conflict of interest. If it's just a flat fee for distribution, you know, that's one thing. But depending on what the agreement is with the trust company or whatever, they could also siphon a lot of the money right off the top of that estate. So again, if you have some people you trust, and I know that you say it's kind of hard to find some. Maybe you get two. It could be relatives or somebody that you trust that could do it a lot cheaper. They get a flat rate for just just doing the distribution so their time is at least compensated Uh, rather than being investment advisors or trust companies that can invest your money for fees and get commissions and do things while they move the money around while they decide how the charities are going to get it. You could do this in a lot more efficient manner the other thing you can do is you could just leave different charities as your beneficiaries on all your assets you wouldn't even need a trust you get to control them all your life as long as there's a beneficiary listed on each asset and by the way you can do that on your house as well those assets will go directly to those beneficiaries, and the companies, when they find out about your death, have the information if you give it to them on who the beneficiary is, and they'll lo- they'll notify them. Hey, we're sorry about the death of Christine. You know, uh, uh, you're the beneficiary. Here's the forms. How do you want the money? Hey, we're a charity and we want it tax free. Send it to us now. Okay, here you go. That could be the best case scenario of all of it. You don't have to hire somebody to oversee it. You just let each charity get a piece of your asset. Now, while you're alive, you can change those beneficiaries anytime. So if a charity becomes out of favor. For example, I used to give a lot of money to Boy Scouts. My kids were in Boy Scouts. I have two Eagle Scouts. I'm proud of them. But Boy Scouts kind of took a turn. Uh, I mean, uh, a hard left turn, <laughs> you might say. <laughs> and I don't I do not do that anymore. So if I have uh, beneficiaries to be the Boy Scouts on some of my estate planning, I can change that. I can change it to heart fund. Now that I may have had a, you know, I have a friend that had a heart transplant. I'm a little bit more uh, into that uh, charity because I've seen how it helps people and families by contributing services and research that helps people have good treatments. I mean, you can change your charities anytime you Want. You can use a variety of them and you can put multiple charities on one asset too. So I would consider a much easier, much cheaper, more streamlined way to deal with this. And there's several, at least a handful that I think are better than the one that you described. And I'm not trying to cut you down because I think you did a lot of thought on this, but because you don't know what all the options are, you came up with this one thinking that it was probably the best. But thanks for asking me the question. I am a certified estate planner. That doesn't mean that I you know, am a lawyer and will represent you in court on estate planning, but it means that I do study estate planning and understand the rules and the way that you play by and what the priorities are on uh, beneficiary designations over and above what a will might say. Beneficiaries trump everything if you have it listed on that asset. And so you could do a lot very
1: simply if you
2: know how to play with the rules.
1: Christine, whatever you've gone through in your life, we do appreciate you spending that straw into gold by making sure that a portion of your assets go towards causes that you care about the most. And again, if you'd like to talk to Jeff, 520 780 Sit down with Jeff. I'm sure that you too can come up with some answers that will satisfy your particular needs. Once again, 520 780 We appreciate you listening to us. And of course, we'll send you out Jeff's book, Retirement, The Road Ahead. Next question, Jeff, is Jay in Tucson, and Jay writes, I have two daughters, age 21 and 23. Their mom, my ex-wife, died in March of 2022. My daughters inherited 401k money, as their mom was currently employed, and they inherited IRA money, too. I want to know if I can turn an inherited 401k funds into a Roth. I'm unsure of the process and can't really find any literature pertaining to the topic. Might you be able to help me?
2: Yeah, interestingly, depending on now, so mom just died recently. I'm sorry to hear that. You know, daughters are inheriting the 401k IRA money. It can be rolled into an inherited IRA, like you said. They still have, because of the timing, they have to withdraw that within 10 years. Along the way, there is no restriction to my knowledge. Now, I haven't done this. Honestly, I usually just people that inherit money, we just pay taxes on it. And we, I like to roll it into a LERP. Because if you roll it to a Roth, first of all, consider this, if it's a big chunk of money and you convert it to a Roth, you have to pay tax on the whole amount. That might be a higher tax bracket. It might be smarter to just use that 10 years as a withdrawal and park it into a LERP, a life insurance retirement plan. That's kind of like a Roth on steroids in that you can put the money into this uh, life insurance plan grows tax-free. You can borrow against it. You don't actually take the uh, withdrawals from the account. You just borrow against it for the rest of your life. And so that might be the angle that you maybe want them to look at, especially if they're healthy and can get life insurance. But as far as converting it to a Roth, I mean, you're still going to have to, if you convert it to a Roth, you pay all the taxes probably up front and then you end up just getting the money tax-free and it has to be within a year. So I don't see the benefit. And honestly, I haven't done that because you have to pull it out in such a short period of time anyway. There's no long-term growth tax free and so forth. And either way, you pay all the taxes. So you pay them now or you pay them over the next 10 years. And there's a couple of different ways to look at it. But, you know, I usually let math and your tax brackets rule that decision. So I'd have to look into a little bit more before I had a final answer. But uh, I do believe you can. I just don't believe that it makes a lot of sense unless somebody's in a really low tax bracket right now. They're going to get a really high paying job later. and They don't want to have to be forced to take out these funds later. Now, depending on how, uh, let's see, the daughters are 21 and 23, and I don't know how old Actually, it doesn't really matter how old uh, mom was. If the daughters are 21 and 23, you know, maybe they are in a low tax bracket. Maybe they can use it to, you know, cover the cost of tuition. I mean, it looks like they're college age. Maybe they could use it to supplement a mortgage payment with interest rates being as high as they are right now. Maybe they want to buy a house with some of that money, pay taxes on it, but, you know, use it as, as income. You know, you, if, if you have an interest rate on a mortgage, you get to write some of that off. So, you know, maybe that offsetting uh, payment over the next 10 years on the 401k or the IRA the interest or even the taxes would be offset with the interest that you pay on that mortgage. So there are some tax planning implications that you could do, depending on what the kids want to do with that money. But again, it it always depends. And it's always a what if. That the problem is, if they were 21 and 23, and you could convert it to a Roth, and you could have a lifetime to take that money out, I would be all for doing the Roth. Because that would be 40 years of growth before they even retire, maybe more. And you get a lot of growth. But you can also do that in in a LERP. And the thing is with the LERP, you don't have to wait till you're 59 and a half to take money out. Actually, I guess you don't with an inherited IRA either. You just have to pay the taxes dealing with that. But bottom line is the rules change on IRAs and on inherited IRAs, there's just, I think they're just too restricted to do a whole lot with.
1: Jay, we appreciate you listening to us in Tucson. We hope that that answers your question. And of course, we'll be sending you out Jeff's book, Retirement, The Road Ahead. Our next question, Jeff, is Richard listening to us in Vail. Richard writes, I'm 62, unmarried, and plan to retire at 65. I'm considering an annuity for some safe money in retirement. I have about $300,000 to spend. Now, I have two questions. What type of annuity can I buy that will guarantee income for life? And if I change my mind, how long after I've made the purchase can I back out? Well, I would
2: say, Richard, decide what you want and stick with the plan. Every time you change a plan, it usually, uh, you know, it's usually disruptive and it usually costs you money. In an annuity, if let's say you buy the annuity, you just don't like the contract once you get it, you have 15 days to send it back. And that's, that's the minimum you have. 15 to 30 is what most companies give you. The state requires at least 15 days that you have what's called a free look period, that you can send it back, get all your money back, get the $300,000. Now, let's say you buy a 12-year contract that gives you an 8% payout on this money in three years which means you make $24,000 a year forever, which I think is pretty good, $2,000 a month, guaranteed, that's way better than the 4% rule. And I'm just ballparking here uh, based on your age. And let's say five years down the road, let's say it's a 12-year contract or a 10-year contract. This is around the numbers of 10. You, you keep it five, and then you want to bail out. Let's say the penalty is 10% if you bail out early. Well, you got $24,000 a year. Let's say you've drawn the account down from 300 down to 150, and you might take a 10% penalty, so you might get 135000 back out. Well, if the uh, annuity has you know, made 25 or 30%, you're still ahead of the game. So it's not like you lost any money. It's still safe, but you still get your money back minus the early termination charge, basically, or the surrender charge or penalty. But keep in mind, most of these annuities don't have commissions up front. They only have a back-end charge if you bail out during the contract period. So it's not like your money's tied up forever and you can't get out it just means you have to play the rules on a cd you buy a 2 year cd and if you bail out early you take a 6 month penalty hit you take you know you give away a fourth of your uh, potential 2 years of earnings that's even if you do it within the first 3 months you you might still actually go into principal on that so everything has a cost unfortunately cds are capped around 5%-ish. And even you know, longer-term CDs are going down to 4 because I don't think banks think that the interest rates are going to prevail or the Fed's going to keep them up that long for some reason. I don't know that that's going to be the case or not. We'll wait and see. But the fact is, is you can lock in a much longer-term guaranteed rates of return because insurance companies can invest your money right now at 5% for the rest of your life, not just 5% in a two-year CD at a time and hope the rates are maintained at that level. So you can get really good payouts, you can basically buy your own pension. And my opinion is, if you have that money earmarked for income, and you think you're in decent health, and you want that for income, then leave it as income. Don't even think about bailing out. What I would do is, if you're worried because you don't have any other money, is maybe you put 250 into it. You invest the 50,000 in some good solid stocks, maybe some uh, blue chip that have a certain AI exposure or something like that that has a tendency to yeah, you know be kind of hypeish right now, but you know may give you some really good home run potential returns. And then you have that extra money to have some fun with down the road. Five. Ten years down the road, if you want a chunk of money out, and you don't have to blow your annuity money, so I don't know if three hundred thousand is all the money, or if you just have three hundred thousand you want to put in an annuity, and you have your other investments. But uh, first of all, I wouldn't put all your eggs in an annuity. I would leave some out for liquidity purposes, and to try to you know get some growth out of it over the long term, if you can. Do that. If you need every bit of that two thousand a month to uh, live on, and three hundred thousand is the number that it takes to get two thousand a month, it might be more, might be less. Then um, you know you have to make that decision. You know, it's your Social Security? You know, if your current job pays you a hundred thousand, your Social Security is going to pay you thirty thousand. Might be nice to have another couple thousand guaranteed because then you know more of your bills that you're used to paying are going to be covered. But if three hundred is all you have, I would not leave all of it in the market, leave it to chance because volatility will rode that investment account to zero a lot faster than you think when you factor in volatility and you're taking income. So keep that in mind.
1: Richard, we appreciate you listening to us. Thank you so much for sending in that question. And of course, your book, Retirement, The Road Ahead, is on its way to you. If our listeners would like to get their question on the air, they can do it by going to premret.com, P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. Send us your question there. If we use it on the air, of course, you'll get Jeff's book, Retirement, The Road Ahead. And I want to remind people here today, right now, that you can also sit down with Jeff, get your individual questions answered in a no-cost, no-obligation retirement roadmap meeting by calling 520-7809. 59. Again, no cost, no obligation for that. Friendly conversation to get your questions answered, so that you can make sure you get on the path to a retirement, in which you not only survive but you also thrive. Again, no cost and no obligation for that. 5207809059 or online at PremRet.com. P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. Jeff, I was just reading an article that says that more than 40% of the labor force will be affected by artificial intelligence in three years, and that comes from a gentleman named Brian Nowak at Morgan Stanley. Four out of 10 jobs affected by artificial intelligence. Now, I know that the stocks have been on a tear this year, but what do you make of his statement? And if you're buying into what he said, is it going to be too late to invest?
2: I think as far as investing goes, I think AI stocks, first of all, are way overvalued if you consider what they even consider the revenues of AI is going to be over the next five years. The market cap on these stocks, the seven, the magnificent seven that have basically been hyped into stratospheric ranges, you know, NVIDIA, Google, Meta, you know, all these companies that are claiming that they have all this AI play out there. And I agree that AI is going to be a big part of life. I don't necessarily like it. I think the investments long-term are still going to play out, but I think we're already buying these stocks at what they should cost five years from now. I think we're overpaying at at this point. But then again, what do you buy when every other stock is losing money, don't have the hype behind it? And, corporate America, you know, three out of four stocks are uh, earnings are reducing and the economics of those companies are not looking really favorable for investments. In fact, if you look at the uh, total earnings of the S&P this year, which have been, you know, decent, you can attribute them to seven stocks. They call it the Magnificent Seven. And the rest of the stocks have been largely break even more than half of way more. That's about 70 or 80% of them have actually gone down, not up. So uh, you're looking at market breadth not being that really good. You're looking at the index is doing okay because of hype on a few stocks. So, you know, I I think there's when the cycle, the market cycle that I keep talking about, you know, finally finishes correcting because there's always certain phases that happen. There are certain things that, you know, point to a recession. The big thing that has kept us out of the recession was all the printed money. Now, some people would say, well, the government can always just print more money and keep us from having a recession. They could, but then that exacerbates the inflation problem that they're trying to, and they've committed to get under control. And, you know, they would have to bail on that idea if they were to do that. So I think we we finally kind of come to the end of the rope with all this uh, helicopter money going into the market and, uh, you know, jumping on the hype. If you look at what the market's done just the last uh, month or two, we've got downtrends in every index. You know, we got these little pops in the market every few days, but the, the, the trend has definitely turned flat to negative over the last few months. So first half of the year was great. This uh, last quarter hasn't been so great. And I think the market's kind of seeing that. We get good days and everybody seems to hear about the good days. And I've mean, even been asked, Jeff, why aren't we in the market right now? Well, I don't know, why don't you play on the freeway when it's rush hour? Well, because <laughs> you're gonna get hit by a car. Too dangerous. You know, why don't well, yeah, it's too dangerous right now. You know, if you want to go out on the freeway, do it when it's closed and they're having a you know, a freeway party. I mean, I actually had one near my house when they opened up a section of the freeway. They really? they said, Oh, look at the freeway's open. We're gonna have a little, you know, cookies and cake and, you know, celebrate the freeway opening. It was before it actually opened. That's the oh, only God. time you should go out and play on a freeway when it's safe. <laughs> you should not be in the market when there's more pressure pushing it down than going up. Even though it's we're seeing it go up. You know, it's it's some uh, Tailwinds that uh, are probably going to turn into head. Uh, there's enough headwinds. I think the headwinds are going to be frail soon. Now, again, I'm not a doom and gloomer. I'm just a let's observe the market, see where we're at, see what's happened in history, and know that history repeats, and know that we need to be careful. So, you know, I, I think from that standpoint, we also need to be careful about what AI is going to do to us from the standpoint of just industry changes. Everything changes as time goes on. I mean, think what the invention of the car did to the workforce. It changed a lot of people's work. It actually created situations where you could probably do more things and have more jobs and people who live far away on a farm could actually have a job in the city if uh, they didn't want to be a farmer, whatever. AI is going to change things too. It doesn't mean that 40% of the people will necessarily be out of work. It'll be that 40% of the people might need new jobs, new careers. I mean, we might see whole new industries open up and things get, uh, when people get out of work, entrepreneurialism really becomes entrepreneurial. I don't think that's a word. Entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurs come out of the woodwork and come up with things because it's a matter of survival. And America is still a free enough country where you can actually put ideas to work and create new industries and things that nobody ever really thought of before. So there's going to be a lot of money driven by AI, I believe. It will probably go into those corporations. But I mean, who knows what the big tech companies who create AI and are behind it, what are they going to get into? What are they going to do? What new things are they going to build? What new uh, type of projects are they going to have that are going to hire these people that are maybe losing you know, their jobs in the uh, service industry when computers can do what they used to do? Maybe they'll go into tech manufacturing of new products and things. So yeah, it's going to be a, a change. I think everybody knows that these days, everything changes so fast that you've got to be nimble and not just consider you can just go get one job and keep it till you die. That was the old days. You could do that 50, 60, 100 years ago. You can't do that nowadays. Most people are going to have five to 10, you know, career changes, not job changes, career type changes. So just expect AI to create some more. If you're young, you're going to probably end up either trying to, you ought to maybe look at getting into the AI business so you have a little bit more job security or find out those holes that AI might leave that you need to fill because there's going to be some people that don't jump all into AI that are still going to want a lot of these old school products and services, I'm sure. So I don't know. I mean, will it affect 40% as in 40% don't have jobs and are going to be on welfare? And so all the people making tons of money in AI are going to have super high taxes to have to pay their way so that we can have this uh, you know, welfare state on half the you know, citizens of our country. I don't think it's going to get there. In that case, I am not a doom and gloom guy for AI. I don't like it. I don't like other things that don't have a heart and a brain making decisions that might affect my life. I think that I'd rather have the human experience uh, be more prevalent and I am not really in favor of, of technology taking over in any sense of the word. The fact is it's going to happen. It is happening. And companies can be a lot more efficient when they use AI. Now, I hope the government, if they can actually represent us, can make some changes or make some regulations which take them out of controlling our life to the sense that we're directed and driven by whatever AI says. I hope we can still end up making our own decisions and do our own thing and, and you know, be a free-thinking people. I get a little worried that it's going to automate so much that we don't have that anymore. And so, although, you know, I think it's going to create a lot of uh, cool efficiencies in the future, I think uh, every good thing can have the same amount of bad traits to it. And I think we just have to go in with an open mind and uh, remember to keep our feet planted, you know, with the system of values and right and wrong that we believe and stay that course. And I think America will continue to be a great place, and AI is not going to ruin everybody's life. It's just going to affect it. I think affecting doesn't mean ruin.
1: Jeff, I'm sure that our listeners may have some questions about artificial intelligence and how it may affect their portfolio. Once again, you can talk to Jeff by calling 520-780-9059. Ask your questions about AI, the stock opportunities there, and whether or not this is an area that you want to explore as part of your portfolio. Again, it's not going to cost you a dime for that conversation. 520-780-9059. You can also go online, find out more about the firm at premret.com, P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. Well, Jeff, it's been a great show this week, but we're out of time. I want to thank you for your time, but most importantly, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. For Jeff Hogan, I'm Jeff Shade. Get out, have a great weekend in this great part of the country that we live in, or you're visiting. We'll talk to you again next week with another edition of Premier Retirement, right here on 790 Kst Tucson's Most Stimulating Talk.
0: Investment advisory services provided through Premier Wealth Advisors, LLC, an Arizona state-registered investment advisor. Securities transactions are placed through TD Ameritrade. Insurance and annuity products are offered through Premier Advantage, Inc., DBA Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management. Investing involves risk, including the potential loss of principal. Any reference to protection, safety, or lifetime income generally refer to fixed insurance products. Insurance guarantees are backed by the financial strength and claims-paying abilities of the insurance carrier. This show is intended for informational purposes, only and is not to be construed as advice or recommendations due to show format accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed premier retirement and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice and may only conduct business with residents of states and jurisdictions where they're properly registered